Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast. This is Lika. I've been one of uh, I've been on this program before as Janelle's special co-host, and Janelle is not here today. Um, she's working on something really special for February. Instead, here's one of our favorite episodes from the past 15 months. You're gonna love it. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. I'm very excited to welcome today's guest on the podcast. He's a father, a husband a pastor, a musician, an avid reader, a writer, a self-described amateur, currently dabbling in both boxing and carpentry, I believe. And I don't know exactly what he's doing today, but welcome to the Finding Something Real podcast, Josh White. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm excited for this conversation. Um, I'm thrilled, really. I mentioned on this podcast that my family gets away in July and Cannon Beach Christian Conference Center has become a really special place for us. In fact, Lika and I went there one time. You remember that, Lika? Yes. <laughs> for a girls weekend. For a girls weekend, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, my family, we usually go there during the month of July. We usually go there a little earlier in the month and it's become our tradition as a family just to get away my husband's a school administrator and it's his break and um, the first couple years we went there was this very dynamic uh, speaker I'd never heard before who was just so bold and unapologetically um, what I would call reckless abandonment in the way he talked about the gospel and his name is Luis Palau, and I found out later that he was super uh, well-known around the world. <laughs> and But he was so down-to-earth and bold, and he's in his 80s. He, uh, I think in the last year was or a year and a half ago, diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. And we heard that he was going to be back at the Cannon Beach Conference Center, so we changed all our plans so we could go hear him speak. And we knew that maybe he wouldn't be able to make it. Um, but then COVID happened, then we thought he was going to be there and then he, he wasn't going to be there at the last minute. And I have to say, we went to the conference center this year. I felt kind of discouraged, kind of disappointed, kind of like what is going to happen here? And I was so, um, I, I guess refreshed by the speaker that they had instead <laughs> and who was there for the whole um, week. And that was you, uh, Josh. Um, you also have a reckless abandon when it comes to sharing the gospel and your love for Jesus. And um, it was so refreshing to come away from the chaos of time um, spent in lockdown and uh, looking at news headlines to just focusing on the message of the gospel um, as you shared the words of Christ from the cross. And so I was so excited to uh, chat with you, and we had a couple small conversations, um, but it was just what I needed. Um, and so I was very excited that you agreed to come on the podcast. So thank you so much. Yeah, well, I'm, I, I'm not Luis Palau, but <laughs> he is a good friend, so I, I'm, I'm able to assimilate a lot of what he says. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, yeah. you know, it, it was just what I needed to hear. Yeah. He he is an he is an amazing uh, down to earth. I mean, for I mean, he essentially is the Billy Graham of of Central and South America, and just a um, yeah. It, it's uh, I had him preach actually at the opening our Good Friday service for the grand opening of our church our church building in Southeast, and I mean, here he is in the middle of like the most probably one of the most bohemian neighborhoods in America, and he's preached in a very clear and simple gospel message. And, you know, everyone said that won't work in Portland. And what do you know, you know, whatever, like a hundred people gave their life mm -hmm. to Jesus that night. <laughs> so wow. yeah, he's, he's, he is an amazing person. It was sad to not be able to spend time with him uh, for me as well this year. Yeah. And I think I remember you saying you work with him and his ministry quite a bit though. So do you guys get to see each other or have you been able to see him? I have since COVID. I mean, we talk on the phone quite a bit, and I actually just talked to Kevin, his son, who's now the uh, CEO of uh, Palau Ministries. Um, and um, yeah, the, uh, I mean, I travel. I usually travel with them. I'm, I feel like I do something, you know, on average of like once a month for the Palau's. And I, I, I don't. I, I, I try to never be away from the church more than one weekend a month. So, yeah, yeah. that's really cool. 
Um, so you graciously said yes to coming on the podcast. And something that really struck me about you is that you have a very unique story of how you came to Christ. So I was wondering if you would share some of your journey. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up loosely in the church. Uh, and I say loosely, my mom came to faith when I was in third grade, but I, I had such a broken home life that, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't think I ever understood or grasped the concept of grace. Uh, by the time I was in high school, you know, I'd essentially rejected Christianity totally. It just didn't, it didn't resonate with me where I was at. And, uh, um, and I, I began to, you know, pursue, unfortunately, activities that would be quite con everything that you pray. You know, I was the kid that would go to youth group and you pray to God that your children never go to youth group with a kid like me because I would take drugs and go to church and like I just was not I was I was the the troubled the troubled kid you know that just I I went because you know generally I just wanted to meet girls uh and uh, by the time I was by the time I was 17 I, I didn't go at all and I uh, I moved to Seattle in my when I was 20 to pursue you know to pursue music full-time and was signed at 22 to Mercury Records and, and a month before I met my wife, Darcy. And uh, we fell in love. Uh, she moved to Seattle from Portland to be with me. And uh, we got married like a year after we met. And we thought, you know, she thought she was marrying a rock star. And I thought I was going to be a rock star. And three months after we got married, uh, I was dropped from my record label after my single failed at radio. And that kind of began the existential crisis at like 24 years old of just like everything that I thought mattered was like already coming to a lamentable end. <laughs> and so, uh, so I spent kind of the next two years, you know, just pursuing things and, and, uh, and getting kind of deeper into, into pretty significant drug use. I mean, our band was really big in the Northwest. And so um, I got into a different group that we were all from very established bands and it was like this kind of fast movement upward but it was also a lot of really kind of dangerous lifestyle behavior um two of the members got hooked on heroin while we were while we were being courted by multiple record labels and it was at that point that i just began to say like i don't even know if i, I don't even like the music i'm making i'm just doing it to get signed and if we get signed, my best friend's probably going to die of an overdose because he's already living so recklessly. And I was doing more and more hard drugs myself. And I was like, that's when I, Darce was on the verge of leaving me. So I picked up a Bible one day that my mom gave me when I was 21. Um, and I started reading through it for the first time. And specifically, you know, I had enough of an up, upbringing that, you know, after loosely exploring you know, Buddhism and some other things that fell flat for me. Uh, I, I just kind of went back to my roots, but this time I was like, I want to, I want to understand who Jesus is. And so I started reading the Sermon on the Mount and uh, I kept rereading it. And specifically there was one verse that like hit me really in this weird way, in a way that actually like offended me and frustrated me and made me think that Jesus's teachings were impossible, which was, which they are. Uh, and it was the be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And I, I remember the first time I read, it, I was so mad. I wanted to throw my Bible out the window. Cause I'm like, that's ridiculous. That's stupid. Nobody's perfect. And it was after reading it a few times, there was like this, I remember it was like over a week period. It was like this light bulb kind of went on in my mind. And I realized that was the whole point is that we can't be, and that he alone is. And I sought out a little church. Uh, I, I knew of a church that photographer that had, had photographed our band was a really zealous believer and uh and she, and she had invited me once to come to her calvary chapel church and and so i decided to give it a try and for the first six months i just sat in the back row and listened to the sermons be preached i hated the music uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was bad <laughs> i didn't i just didn't understand church music and it wasn't hymns and it wasn't pop music and it was just something altogether foreign to my my ears uh, and i i just remember the pastor finally discovering 
you know, that I was a musician. I, I we, we met, we became friends, and he just kept encouraging me and trying to draw me in. And uh, um, yeah, I, I feel like about a year into this sort of intellectual ascent, uh, became actually a total surrender. Um, mm. And uh, Darcy didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, she was horrified that I had become a believer. Like she was already horrified by my behavior as a non-believer. And now the first year I was even worse because now I felt guilty all the time, but I still wasn't experiencing victory. Mm. <laughs> so she's like, oh, she's like, at least before you were fun. Like, you know, so, uh, and she had lost her only sibling to AIDS, um, mm. uh, who was a friend of mine actually um, at 24 years old. And, and so she just like, if there is a God, I don't want anything to do with him. But once I had like a real surrender, and it actually was through listening to a series of sermons by a man who preached here at Cannon Beach, um, Charles Price. He was the dean of Cape and Ray, Englishman, mm -hmm. um, and, and then became the lead pastor of People's Church in Toronto. Um, he gave a series of sermons here in 2002 um, on, uh, or in 2001, excuse me, um, on the... Um, on Romans one through five and, uh, you know, on the surrendered life. And that was when I listened to all, I was painting at the time and I, I would wear like a Walkman and listen to talk radio or listen to music. And my pastor said, listen to these sermons. I listened to all seven hours of those sermons in one day. And then I listened to all seven hours again the next day. And then I remember at the end of it, I got down my knees and I just began to weep. And I, I realized that I'd put my faith in Jesus kind of as a, bargain like i'll trust you if you make me famous and mm -hmm. i discovered very quickly that jesus isn't in the business of co-planning our lives with us uh, and i just laid everything down i went home i repented to my wife i called my band and i quit the band that evening i had just picked up management with this the this management company that was managing smash mouth and third eye blind and down in california and i called them and i quit wow I canceled my tour to LA and I went on a missionary trip to Russia instead. And that's when I wrote my first, my first worship song. It's the first time I led someone to the Lord. And that was when it was like something clicked. And that's when Darcy saw a legitimate change in me that kind of opened her up and she came to faith a year later, right? Like right after our son, Henry was born. So, yeah. Wow. And then she, and then we ended up in ministry. I started leading worship after that trip. Um, John, our pastor talked me into leading worship and I didn't know any better. And the first time I led worship, I, I introduced, I think eight new songs. I wrote six of them. <laughs> <laughs> and then I didn't know that you shouldn't do that. Um, and uh, yeah, we, uh, but really quickly kind of word began to spread. The owners of tooth and nail records were um, started attending the church and the, not before long, you know, this dream that I had died to, which was music, uh, was kind of given back to me in a new way. And mm -hmm. so right before I went into ministry full-time, I signed a record deal with Tooth & Nail to do a worship album. And uh, I moved to Spokane, took my first ministry job at Calvary Chapel, Spokane. And that's where I formed Telecast, which was um, the band that ended up taking off. I was there for a year before our record took off at Christian Radio, and I ended up touring around the world for 2003 and 2004. Wow. Yeah. And that's where I discovered my desire to preach. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because okay. I was I was disturbed by the uh, lack of passion for Jesus among young people. And in the mu Christian music industry it was so weird. I mean, it's just like a it's like this strange, you know, like al alternative universe where kids that grew up in the church discovered it was much easier to be a rock star in the Christian music industry because the music is so subpar compared to what the world is producing. And so, you know, they weren't interested in, you know, proclaiming Jesus. They were interested in using that platform as a means of being famous. And, and for me, I was like, I, that's all I had pursued. And I was the opposite. I'm like, I didn't even care. The music to me was now just a tool. And I just wanted to, I, you know, I was so zealous. I thought it was like, Keith Green. I remember actually getting in, tr getting in trouble on tour with David Crowder for, um, uh, he was being managed by Louis Giglio and, uh, um, and those are big names uh, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Louis Giglio. Yeah. He is the, the founder of the passion movement, but he called, he called uh, my record label and complained that I was talking about Jesus too much. <laughs> Louis Giglio did or David yeah, Crowder? Louis Giglio did. 
yeah oh he's my like gosh. we didn't pay him to talk we paid him to open with music and i was like and i and i was so defiant i was like well i won't if david crowder will but he won't <laughs> so i'm going to keep talking about jesus <laughs> until they <laughs> kicked me off the door which they didn't wow so there's so many things i want to ask about that lika do you have any i'm wondering did you ever go to amsterdam were you in tour there I've never actually actually I've never been to Amsterdam. I I actually toured. I played in Norway, um, I, I, Germany, and Norway, and Iceland, and New Zealand, Australia. Um, but uh, but yeah, I've never I've never been to Amsterdam. I've never been to Sweden, uh, or I I I played in Spain too. But yeah. Wow. Do you have any questions? Because I've got some. No. <laughs> you think? Okay. <laughs> so, I guess. You mentioned that you had a passion for preaching. You wanted to share with young people who weren't passionate. They were passionate about the music and becoming famous, but maybe not necessarily about Jesus. So how did you, how did that begin? And and what it's like to preach to millennials in maybe a city where most people don't uh, really care about Jesus? Yeah, Um well, the way that I ended up becoming a preacher was that after a year on the road, I toured like 250 shows and I saw like every type of church from hyper charismatic and Pentecostal. I saw the difference of the church, like the church was so different in Russia, even in Europe, um, because it was because, you know, in Russia, you know, it had been a communist country for so long that like it was all new and so people that became believers really were counting the cost it was like you really had to be committed or you weren't going to survive i feel like that's even similar in europe where when you're in a truly post-christian society like that christians actually live more app more in a more robust and apostolic way where they're they're they have to be committed to one another because mm -hmm. because they live in a culture that doesn't doesn't understand the gospel. Um, but the benefit of being in a post-Christian environment is that because people, that means that you literally, you're dealing with people that have no context. They don't, they don't know words like Baptist or, you know, they, they haven't heard of Hillsong. <laughs> they don't, you know, they don't, and nor do they care, but that doesn't mean that they aren't open. In fact, I would argue that they're actually, they tend to be more open because uh, because I think that there is a longing in the human heart that scripture de describes as, you know, God placing eternity in the heart of man that we're, if we're made by God and for God, that it would make sense that there's something in, in a person who's made in the image, though that image may be deeply marred, there's still a desire to be connected with what it is that you were created for. It's just, unfortunately, we displace that central longing upon all sorts of things that ultimately crush us and break our hearts. And so I, I think that in a city like Portland, what I found is the opposite of what people told me, which is that people would be hostile to the faith. They would, you know, uh, I try to invite people to church every week. And in 11 years of leading Dora Pope, I've, I've never, <laughs> I've never had anyone be angry at me and yell at me or, you know, be hostile. I've had someone be smug, but I've never had anyone, you know, we're so afraid of being persecuted. And what we mean by persecution in America is people not liking us, <laughs> which is pretty pathetic <laughs> when you really think about it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, yeah, I, you know, when I toured after seeing what I saw was an increasing uh, departure from the centrality of the cross uh, a recognition of what I call low anthropology, that people are far more sinful than they like to admit, which is the very thing that qualifies us for grace. Uh, and that the gospel is not something that we earn. It's something, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, the scriptures about a God who seeks man, not vice versa. Uh, and, uh, and what I was troubled by was that I was seeing books like the purpose driven life on pulp is more often than I was seeing Bibles. And I saw kids whose youth group experience was more around, you know, ha being in a multimillion dollar, you know, mega church, you know, youth facility where it was gospel light and, you know, world heavy. And so I, that caused me to leave, leave touring. And uh, I, 
I went on staff at a church in California for two and a half years where I started preaching and kind of cut my teeth before moving back to the Northwest. And I actually worked with this guy, John Mark Comer, who's the pastor of Bridgetown. <laughs> I'm a big Austin. fan and anyone who listens to this knows it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So JM and I, um, we worked together for, I worked for him for two years. I was his worship pastor and, and one of the other teachers. And then I left, um, he was pastoring Solid Rock. I mean, he was the pastor of the largest suburban church in Oregon. And so um, I left that church to, I mean, I'm cut, I'm designed for urban living, you know? Yeah. And so <laughs> I don't, I don't even, I didn't, I've never lived, you know, in the suburbs, like until I went into ministry in California in my life. It's like either small town or rural living or, or you know, the moment I turned, 18, I moved into the city, you know, so, so yeah, for me, it was, uh, the suburbs have always been a a mystery uh, that offends all my, that it draws out all my snobbery. (laughs) (laughs) And it's completely subjective and there's not a spiritual word in that statement. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's funny as I, I tend to think of myself as a city person too, but I married a, a man that I love from North Dakota, and uh, we live in rural Washington State. So that's been part of my surrender journey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I wanted to quote something you said uh, when you were speaking in Cannon Beach a few weeks ago, because I thought mm-hmm. it was pretty profound. You said, I come down pretty hard on some, some of my friends who have kind of an obsessive desire to be appreciated by non-believers. You know, we got to work hard to make our faith palatable for modern sensibilities. And so they'll downplay certain aspects of Christianity that come across as a little weird. And I'm like, listen, the moment you think that there was a man who once walked on earth and who actually carried humanity's brokenness upon himself and a single act that actually changes history, past, present, and future, this cosmic event that literally changed the very orientation of creation itself, is the moment you've already entered into. You can't downplay anything. You're already a weirdo. So just accept it. <laughs> so I totally, I totally I agree that. with that you. I said that. This is quite rich. It was very rich. <laughs> and it's funny because Lika and I have had this conversation about how I'm, I, I say I'm weird. She's like, I've never told you you're weird. And I said, it's okay. I, I understand I am. <laughs> right, right. right, Lika, it's a true story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Um, but how do you tell people about the gospel then when it is so foreign and strange, how do you avoid becoming a people pleaser and trying to change it? So it feels easier. Yeah. Well, living peaceably amongst, among all people, if possible, is very different than being a, being a person who's primarily concerned with people liking you. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the, uh, the, the gospel is offensive. I mean, it, the, the, the response that we should be looking for when it comes to talking about Jesus is not neutrality. Uh, Jesus never brought about a new, neutral response. People either loved him or they hated him, period. Mm. Like, what, you know, he didn't, he, he provoked a, a, a polarization. Um, and I think that that's, that's where I think much of modern evangelicalism has become quite weak is that, you know, even, even the seeker sensitive movement, then, every form has its strengths and weaknesses the, the, but the the idea that you know that we have to downplay the more the more offensive aspects of faith i, I i'm not in i think that I, I don't think it's right to talk to a non-believer you know you don't start off with you know issues around sexuality or you know you start with the cross and the crosses that's why i always say that the centrality of the cross is this is the return to the center you get your center right the the circumference will 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 follow Um, but if you try to start on the circumference of the christian faith like the the implications of the cross without ever talking about the cross uh, christianity becomes another another ladder uh, and, and as you, you probably could tell when you were here, uh, ladder theology is, I think, one of the great enemies of Christianity. It's, it's, the, it's the promotion of law. Um, and it's funny for those of us that hold tenaciously to a gospel of grace, we actually are more comfortable with giving people law than we are with, with mm-hmm. the pure gospel. Um, because we, we, 
we will say Jesus has come to save you from your sins. You can't save yourself. But the moment they say yes to Jesus, we immediately give them a bunch of rules that they then have to follow. And we put them in a place where they're just, they're more frustrated than they were when they were living as pagans. Um, and so I think that, you know, like the goal of the church should not be to exhaust its adherence with rules and regulations. Paul said, let no one judge you for your holidays or your, don't be caught up in silly, trivial, peripheral things. He's like, we preach Christ crucified. Like that's the thing that convicts. That's the thing that transforms. It's not driven by guilt and shame. That's been dealt with once and for all uh, through the cross. What it's, what it, what it brings is conviction, which leads to change and comfort. And so, um, so I just think that when you have, when you have preachers that put an overemphasis on practice um, over over gospel because grace is grace grace is something that's so foreign i just read frederick beekner said he said even loving someone is actually grace and then he goes he goes let me ask you a question have you ever tried to love someone and uh you know we will say love is a choice i'm like uh it's actually not something you can make happen like it's i think that that uh sustaining love love begins when you fall in love with someone there's hardly hardly choice in it it's like when i fell in love with darcy it was like i saw her i told her she was the most beautiful woman i'd ever met in my life she fell for it because she knew <laughs> i meant it and uh uh and you know we fell madly in love before we hardly knew anything about each other. The, the choice then that follows is, is uh, maintaining that mystery of that initial grace uh, and, and feeding into it so that that romance can actually stay alive. Um, and so, so I think that, that what I see as problematic right now is that there's an increasing movement toward emotional health, I hate that conversation so much. Like, you know, the danger of sending, you know, um, uh, mal-shaped believers into the world. Uh, and I'm like, I'm like, you're always mal-shaped. Like everything <laughs> we do is mixture. You're all a bunch of weirdos. Like that's not the, like what we need is a, is a recklessness that is, that says, I recognize that I'm a mess. I just posted a poem by George Herbert the other day. He said, he says, we're all, we're all a piece of crazy glass. And yet that glass becomes the very window into the perfection of grace when we're yielded to Jesus is essentially the essence of the poem. In spite of mm -hmm. the foolishness of the vehicle, God continues to bring forth his gracious one-way love to the world through us, his His people but if we as a people put all of our focus on how to have our best life now or how to discipline ourselves so that we can have the greatest level of intimacy with jesus possible you know when paul tells timothy to you know take heed to his own godliness he's he it's always in direct correspondence to his care for the community that he's been called to and so i think that that individualistic uh, approach to Christianity is is deeply problematic, and the quarantine is revealing that right now more than ever. That it is not good that man be alone. I'm beginning <laughs> to question what is more dangerous: um, COVID, which is quite real. It's killed 152,000 people now in America. Is COVID more dangerous, or is the psychological um, impact of isolation um, going to actually take a greater toll um, on the world? And you know, time will tell on it <laughs> yeah yeah lika and i have had some conversations about that too mm -hmm. about what this is costing people i'm wondering how do you explain the gospel then um to someone who might be listening right now who feels really confused about what the gospel of jesus christ really is would you mind just sharing briefly what is it yeah i would think that the gospel uh in its essence uh it it begins with God, a God who created all that is, uh, and he created the universe uh, as a display of his glory, but also it's an outworking of his essence, which is love. Um, he placed humanity at the center of that creation, uh, and that we are 
is image bearers. It's the thing that makes us unique, our, our ability to, to know and be known, uh, our ability to contemplate our own existence. It sets us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom. And it's what it means to be image bearers of God. But we obviously also look around the world and see that as beautiful as the world is, it isn't what it ought to be. Um, and what we as Christians believe is that, that, that the word we utilize for that is sin. I think that often non-believers think of sin as the little things you do wrong. You ask any non-believer what they think sin is and they'll, they'll tell you, you know, they'll, they'll have their own threshold for what is morality. Um, and, uh, and you know, it's, you know, it's sin to kill someone or it's sin to be racist. That's a common one right now. People are much more comfortable calling themselves racist than they are sinners at this, at this particular moment in history. Um, but what I would say is racism is, is, is an outworking of sin for sin is something much deeper than the little things we do wrong. Sin is an actual rebellion against God's sovereign rule over us as his as his creatures. And so as sin entered the world, that rebellion, it created a separation uh, where the image of God in man, though not destroyed, uh, was marred on every level. It's what theologians of old called total depravity. It doesn't mean everything you do is bad. It just means everything that you do, even the good things, has something wrong with it. <laughs> and so, uh, what this has done for us as human beings is it has rendered us impotent in our ability to reach God, to have a right relationship with God. Not only did it destroy our relationship with God, it destroyed our relationship with one another, and it ultimately destroyed our ability to even know ourselves. And this is why the world system of correcting the wrongs is fix yourself, then you can be in right relationship with others. And then you don't need God because God is already within you. I mean, the humanistic worldview is that you are God, but a humanistic worldview leads to a materialistic worldview. And as Malcolm Mugridge wisely said, the only possible religion of a materialistic worldview is the religion of sex, <laughs> which is a whole nother conversation. Uh, and so I think that what we have is we have uh, a world that what the scripture declares is that the world is in darkness that humanity has has fallen short of the glory of God and what that means is that 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 image is so marred that we no longer uh, are aware of how close God is to us in spite of that and the beautiful thing about scripture is is that when we see the fall happen they you know and most people have heard of the story of Adam and Eve and the, and, and the garden and the temptation. And regardless of how you take that story, at the essence of it is this, is that at some point in humanity's history, there was a point when the image bearers of God decided to define for themselves what is right and wrong. And in doing so, that is where death entered in. It says where sin entered in, death followed. And so God in his mercy from Genesis all the way to Revelation, which covers the entire scope of the Bible, uh, is a God who continually puts himself in front of humanity and its sinfulness because his, he, the scales tip toward mercy. Uh, we often think of God, I think Christians do a great disservice to God when they say that he is justice. Justice is not what he is. Justice is an attribute. The only attribute that is that actually speaks to God's essence is love, and his justice serves his love. And when I say love, I mean a love that we can't truly comprehend because it's what we call grace. Um, it's a love that loves the unlovable and has literally nothing to do with us and everything to do with the very essence and nature of God. And God proves that love by dealing with the human dilemma of our separation and our broken relationship by entering into his own creation and the God who never changes, he changed. He became something he was not before, and that is man. And that's what we believe Jesus was, is that he was both God and man. And he lived the as the new representative man, the life that we are incapable of living. He showed us what right relationship with the Father looks like. He showed us what a spirit-filled life looks like. 
what offended people about Jesus wasn't so much that they saw God in the flesh. What offended people about Jesus is they saw man as God intended man to be. Um, and so he, as the perfect man, uh, actually did something outrageous. It's the central belief system of the, of the church. And that is that he who knew no sin, that is that he never actually lived in rebellion against the father's rule, but in total surrender. And yet at the same time, taking into himself the frailty of human existence, he played fair. He played by his own rules. Uh, he who knew no sin, we're told became sin. And what we have is that in Jesus, God gives his only son uh, over to our sinfulness. And he takes the death that humanity has experienced due to sin into himself and conquers it fully um, by becoming the sacrifice in our place on the cross of Calvary. So what we believe is that Jesus that is through the spilling of the blood, of the, the mysteries in the blood. It says that the life is in the blood, that God literally died so that we as humans could live, that he took the guilt and the shame and the separation, which is in its essence what we as Christians believe hell is. It is, it is relational separation. Jesus took that into himself and atoned for the world's sinfulness, its rebellion. And as a new representative man, he actually becomes a trailblazer, not to use a word that describes our basketball team, but he's a <laughs> forerunner. He's, he goes before us and he makes a way for us back to God. Um, and it's not about us climbing a ladder. So what Christianity says is that it is the difference. Religion says, live like this and God will accept you. What Christianity says is God has accepted you in his son, Jesus. And this is what brings transformation to the life. And so the cross, Jesus died as the sin bearer of the world. But what we believe tenaciously, the other side of crucifixion is the other central aspect of, of our belief system, which is resurrection, that Jesus on the third day rose from the dead, showing us the father's stamp of approval upon his perfect work, that he lived the life that we couldn't live, he died the death that we deserve, dealing with our sin once and for all, and rose from the dead. And we're told that after showing himself to his followers for 40 days, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, that he returned to his place of glory. For our belief is that God is one God revealed to us in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that he sent his Holy Spirit to come and dwell in those that put their faith in him. And so that we become now... Um, uh, the very conduits by which Jesus makes himself known to the world today. And so what I tell non-believers is this, is that you were created as an object of love by a God who is not content to exist without you. Mm -hmm. And he has already declared a giant yes over all of creation in Jesus the question is, is will you say yes to his yes? And the terrible possibility, what I call the impossible possibility, is that when the Holy Spirit reveals the truth of who Jesus is, that it is possible to say no to God's yes. And so the invitation is always the same. Jesus says, pick up your cross and come and follow me. So die to your desire to be your own God because the worst master you'll ever face, the biggest enemy you'll ever face in life is yourself. <laughs> Release yourself and give Jesus the right to be responsible for you because that's what he's created you for is to be his servant and being his servant actually is the only way that we can find the thing that humans are always striving for, which is freedom. And so, uh, so the invitation is come into a relationship with me, leave what you were worshiping before, because everybody worships. The question isn't, do I worship? The question is, is what do you worship? And you worship whatever it is you've given your heart to. And people worship their jobs and they worship their children and they worship their, they worship, they worship sex and they worship possessions and they can even worship nature. But it seems like Jesus often is the, the one who actually alone can handle our worship and has actually 
created us to become worshipers of him, which is a total allegiance to him, which, which is what actually brings us the greatest satisfaction. Uh, instead, we give our worship to all sorts of things that just continuously break our hearts. And so, um, so the gospel is good news. Uh, it's not good advice. It's not a list of things that, you know, are going to improve your life. It's, it's about saying yes to, uh, it's, it's about saying yes to something that has already happened. It's good news. It's, it's, it's not something you should do. It's, it's something you surrender to. <laughs> How would you encourage people who feel like they can't come to church or to God because of moral reasons, like, for example, their sexuality or homosexuality and then, or hell, like they feel something personal about it and, and they can't come to church. How do you encourage them? Yeah, well, the the classic song is "Come as You Are," and the and the fact is is that if you're a sinner, which you are, <laughs> and that's the thing, when the Spirit reveals the truth of who Jesus is, and at the same time, He at the same time reveals the fundamental brokenness, how lost we are. The that's why that's why I always use AA as the perfect example of what a church service actually should look like because AA is a place where alcoholics recognize that they are helpless in their ability to overcome their addiction. They, they can't do it. Um, and their, their victory over it is actually recognizing first and foremost that they need help. And, and the only way they can get that help is to the willingness to confess it. Uh, and, and they confess it in the context of a community that does not judge them, but actually invites them in. And their mutual confession of their own brokenness actually becomes uh, the means by which they begin to experience victory. And so, so I always say, like, listen, if you're a sinner, you're good news. You're exactly the person that Jesus died for. He, didn't, he said, I didn't come to seek and save the righteous. We don't clean up our acts, which is what I tell people. I'm like, I'm like, come to Jesus. And like where Christians can go horribly wrong is that they begin to focus in on particular um, outworkings of the sin nature uh, instead of actually just realizing that sin is just every time we take our lives into our own hands and refuse to let God the right to be God in and through our lives. And that's why scripture says, what must I do then to be saved? Paul says it the most simply and concisely. Whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. Because what are we confessing when we say Jesus is Lord? We're saying that I'm not. <laughs> and we're also saying if he's Lord, he must be alive. So we're surrendering not to a guy that died 2,000 years ago as a good teacher. We're surrendering to one who conquered death and is present and closer to you than you are to your own thoughts. And that I like to tell people that feel like they can't come to God because they're broken or stuck in sin or, or whatever. Or they're like, this is who I am. And I always just say, listen, on your worst day, Jesus is crazy about you. Uh, and that's the beauty of the gospel. And so, um, you know, I always say like, you know, my dad said that to me, he's like, I can't, I can't come to Jesus because, you know, I'm an alcoholic. And I, and I said, you know, he's like, I'm a chain smoker. I'm doing all these things. And I'm like, dad, I'm not even sure you should give up your alcohol. I think it would kill you. And I'm like, you really think that that's the thing? Like Jesus needs you to do this. I'm like, I'm not going to front load the gospel. It's not about what you stop doing so that Jesus will save you. What you have to stop doing is trying to hold on to some sort of semblance of autonomy. Really, the essence of what the gospel is calling us to is a surrender of our autonomy. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Americans are defined by our great declaration of independence. I say as Christians, we should be driven by the exact opposite of that. It's a declaration of total dependence, <laughs> which alone actually brings us the freedom that we want. So. So I just say, you know, if you are a person who does not know Jesus, I just, I just say, encourage you, like, have you ever prayed the simple prayer, Jesus, show yourself to me, uh, reveal your love to me, 
uh, we think that that's almost some sort of blasphemous thing. Like I always say that to believers. If you, if you don't know that Jesus loves you, you need to pray that he shows you how much he loves you because the Christian life is not just some intellectual ascent. It is meant to be experiential. Um, it's just that it, the experience needs to be grounded in the parameters of, of, of God as he's revealed himself to us through scripture and then illuminated by the Holy spirit. And so uh, the beautiful thing about about witness to non-believers i think we think we need to argue people into heaven and we need to prove that they're you know we need to tear down their straw men or whatever it's like jesus is quite clear nobody comes to me unless the spirit draws them I, there's a supernatural work people people that say yes to jesus almost never said yes to jesus because someone explained atonement to them <laughs> they, they accepted jesus because they were lost and they needed someone to save them. <laughs> and so that, and that's, that's the invitation that I put forth. If you are lost, you're in good company uh, because there's a God who came specifically for you. You're the person that he came for and he loves you and he wants you to know him and to know freedom in him. And the only thing that I've ever seen break a non-believer down to tears every time I've seen someone come to faith is not me giving them a robust theological answer for something. It's just when I look them in the eyes and say, Jesus loves you. Karl Barth, the greatest theologian of the 20th century, maybe the greatest theologian since the Reformation, uh, said at the end of his life, after writing you know, 5 million words in his church dogmatics, uh, he said the most important thing he ever learned was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. <laughs> so... Uh, so that, that I think is the, and that's the only thing that actually is compelling to the world anyway, is when they see believers actually living out the agape love that has truly been birthed in our hearts by the, by the Holy Spirit. So that's good. Um, when we were in Cannon Beach, uh, you had shared a little bit about, well, not just a little bit, I think it was one of your whole sermons, but about uh, the thieves on the cross. And how mm -hmm. one rejected him by saying, if you are the son of God, prove yourself as if, if he were to do that, then he would believe. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, one of the things I think you said was that Jesus had nothing to say to a man who rejected him. And, right. Um, that's a really hard thing to, I, I don't know, for me <laughs> to remember sometimes like that you can't prove you're never going to say anything that's going to convince somebody of the gospel, right? If people don't want to believe, they won't. I mean, that's this, the, the, I mean, you remember when he tells the story of Lazarus, you know, he, one of the things that we, um, that, that we see when Jesus tells the story of, of Lazarus and the, um, and the rich man is that when the rich man finds himself in hell, he said he tells he he tells um abraham to send send lazarus the beggar back to his family to warn them and they said they have the law and the prophets if they will not believe that they won't believe in a ghost and i think that that's the thing it's like jesus could appear in the flesh you know people say unless he shows himself i won't believe but i think that people have an unbelievable ability to to disregard even the things that they can see um and like like we will it doesn't matter like like i mean human beings are unbelievably stubborn uh, we often are more comfortable believing lies than we are the truth so uh it's 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 you know it's part of the unfortunate sin nature and the and the reason that we don't need to argue people into the kingdom because it doesn't matter how much light you shine into the face of a person if they're blind. Mm -hmm. There has to be a supernatural revealing for it to actually even make sense. Like, I don't care how much light there is. If you're blind, you can't see it. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so, so, you know, as I said, the light came into the world, but men preferred darkness. So and they didn't even, didn't even know G the, that the light of the world was right before them. You know. So I guess two two final questions. Lika's going to ask the final question, but I just want to follow up on that. 
Um, what advice would you give to maybe somebody who's listening, who uh, is listening to this podcast because they have seekers or skeptics or people who are discouraged in their faith? Um, how how do they pray for that person? Because like you're saying, it it is a supernatural thing that opens the eyes. So yeah, how do you advise people to pray? Well, I, I always say one of the things we need to pray for and that you see the early church praying for, um, should we pray for the lost? Absolutely. But in Acts, what we see the church praying for is the courage to share with the lost. So we need to be a people that that return to an evangelistic impulse, which is is simply being witnesses. And to be a witness is just you're one who introduces people to the Jesus whom you know and love. One of the most compelling things is like, it's not the question of, you know, can I make someone believe what I believe? But I do think it's important to ask the question is, do the people you talk with believe that you believe what you're telling them? <laughs> if you can become compelling that you believe it. I mean, have you, when you meet someone that truly has been touched by Jesus and they talk about it, it's like, it's pretty compelling because they see, they see that there's something that has captured this person. I can't explain what that is. And, and that's, I've always said that my greatest gift uh, as a pastor is not, you know, some sort of intellectual capacity or, or, you know, uh, you know, persuasive rhetoric. I think the, you know, I'm uneducated. The, my greatest, uh, my, my greatest gift is that I actually really love Jesus. And so when I talk about it, it's not hard to talk about someone you love. <laughs> and so, because I know, I know what I've been saved from. And I, I, you know, it's the one benefit of, you know, being a raging pagan until I was 27 is that I know, I know what, what uh, a life of autonomy actually is. And it's, it's not that awesome. <laughs> and it's quite damaging. And I know what it's like to, to taste grace and to feel that the shackles and the weight of that burden be removed and to feel that freedom that comes um, from being alive in Christ. And, you know, once you drink from that, well, it's like, you know, it's weird that we can drift from it, but it's hard. It's almost impossible to stay away from it for any length of time. Mm -hmm. uh, and so though it's easy to drift because drifting requires no effort. Uh, it, it, it's hard to drift for long if you've really tasted the living Christ. And so, uh, so I think that as for non for believers wanting to see their friends come to faith, I do think that we have to ask the question is like, have you, have you experienced the, the empowerment of the Holy spirit where in the spirit's primary role in our, in our lives is not, you know, signs and wonders, but it, he's a, he's a missionary spirit who is continuously witnessing to the truth of who Jesus is. And it says that he will bring to remembrance the things that I have said, and he will point the world to me. Um, and so, so I think that when we pray for people, it's like we pray that get, hey, God would give us the boldness and the authenticity to talk with them, to help us to be attuned with the sensitivity of the spirit, when to speak and when to listen, um, to help us to um, communicate in, in very natural ways um, that God loves people. I always tell, not, tell believers, like when you talk with non-believers, ask if you can pray for them. It, rarely will people turn down prayer. It's weird. Um, tell people that you do pray for them. Invite them to church with you. I mean, Lika's smiling because those are my tactics. <laughs> she knows. That's what she does to me. I am an unbeliever and that's what happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's just, it's the, it's inviting people to like, come and see what I believe. Like the way that most people come to faith, the door of hope is that it's filled with young people you know, is filled with people your age. Like that's, you know, and when you see your peers, like experiencing something that we all want, which is some kind of fulfillment and, and, and you feel accepted and loved in spite of your brokenness, um, uh, that it becomes a safe place to then, uh, I find people open themselves up to the gospel in new ways. And, and I don't believe that we have to, compromise our orthodoxy um you know which i see churches doing all the time they try to c compromise certain aspects of their faith because they're worried it's offensive the whole gospel is offensive because 
um, the, the gospel says, you know, says you actually are literally an absolute mess and so broken <laughs> that you can't save yourself. You know, it's like what it, I, I kept sharing that, uh, um, that Eugene Peterson uh, quote, he says, God looks down from heaven to see if he can find one woman and one or one man that isn't an idiot. And he comes <laughs> up with a string of zeros. Like that's what Dwarf Hope is. I always like to tell, because I'm an encourager, I like to say, listen, <laughs> you're, you're not a bigger loser than God already knows you are. And that's okay. Cause that's, that's exactly who Jesus came to save. <laughs> and so welcome to the club. <laughs> so, yeah. So I just think, Pray for the lost, but pray also that God gives you the confidence to live out your faith in a naturally supernatural way. Mm. Okay. Lee has a final question, but I forgot to ask you if people want to know more about your music or your ministry, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me at doorofhopepdx.org. Uh, and you can follow me on Instagram at josh.alexander.white. Uh, and that has a link to, I mean, and then I've got a Spotify page. There's a, a famous black blues singer from Maryland from the twenties named Josh White. So him and I, you know, share, share, share the Spotify world. Um, but, uh, but yeah, most of my records are available. So either under telecast or Josh White, but, um, but I've released like, I think six albums in the last uh, 11 years or no more than that, seven albums. And I have a new one coming out on Humble Beast in next month cool so and i and i'm i'm working on my first book called the good death so awesome. yeah well the finding uh something real podcast is about a journey towards a restoration or redemption eternity authenticity and love of those four gifts that we can find in jesus christ which of those stands out to you the most in your life right now and why yeah i think what stands out the most is love I think that everything that Jesus did was motivated by love. And those that have been truly born again, Paul says, it's the love of Christ that constrains or compels us. And uh, um, because grace, grace is love coming at you and at the same time has nothing to do with you. Uh, that grace is unfair because Jesus offers his love to the most broken and evil individual who's ever lived as much as he offers his love to the most the the most morally upright person who's ever lived it doesn't matter if it's hitler or mother Teresa. jesus loves the world and uh, and he proved that love through his laying down of his life for you and i and that's that's the thing that changes life. And I'm not talking about that weak, permissive love of the world that's fickle and, and contingent upon our ability to perform. I'm talking about a love that recklessly pursues, a holy love that literally consumes everything in the beloved um, until only that which is beautiful remains. And, uh, and so I say that love is the most important and the essential aspect of, of who God is. Hmm. Love it. Well, Josh, thank you so much for taking the time yeah. for giving hey, up boxing. For... And yeah, <laughs> that's a I sacrifice. gave up boxing. I know I did. I did. It's all right. Uh, preaching, the, it. preaching the gospel is a bit of boxing. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're thankful you took the time yeah. and until next time. Thank you, friend, for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast. This is a grace-filled, Christ-centered podcast for those who are wandering, wondering, or simply needing to be encouraged in their faith journeys. I hope you'll come back next week when I'll most likely be sharing a conversation with another guest about their journey towards finding something real. And if you're on Instagram, please come find me. On Fridays, I share Instagram Live podcast recaps at 11.45 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. So if you're over there on the gram, you can join me for some fun live awkwardness. <laughs> and finally, if you're someone who was encouraged by today's podcast and you have friends who would benefit from hearing the story shared here, would you go ahead and share? You can do that by hitting subscribe, leaving a review, or sharing a link. 
Your telling others about this podcast helps bring other people along. And finally, just so you know, if you only remember one thing about this podcast, I hope it is this. No matter who you are or what you've done, Jesus Christ loves you, and a real relationship with Him is a treasure trove of restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. He's offering that gift to you today. I pray you believe it.